It's been said that there was nothing, uh, there was never anything so perilous and so exciting as orthodoxy. Nothing so sane and so thrilling. And while that might not be the first thing that comes to mind when we think of true and orthodox Christian doctrine, a little bit of reflection on the truth and on the implication of various Christian doctrines should cause thrilling and exciting emotions to well up within us. Emotions like joy, comfort, gratitude and thankfulness, love towards God, love towards others, humility, to name a few. Now this morning, as we come to John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18, we come to the great doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God, that the Son of God took on a human nature so as to save us. And when we stop and consider it for a few moments, the incarnation is absolutely critical to the plan of redemption. There is both no salvation if Jesus is not God, and there is also no salvation for us if Jesus is not man. There's no salvation without the incarnation. Martin Chemnitz helpfully brought together and summarized a number of scripture passages that emphasize the importance of the incarnation of the, and of the human nature in Christ in regard to our salvation. He said, of such importance is it to rightly recognize the human nature in Christ. For in the flesh of Christ, God condemned sin, Romans 8.3. And in the body of his flesh, we are reconciled to God, Colossians 1.20. We are justified by his blood, Romans 5.9. He laid down his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 20, 28. The Son of God was born of a woman in order that we who were under the law might be redeemed and receive adoption, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. He does not blush to call us brothers because he has been made a partaker of flesh and blood, Hebrews 2, 14 through 17, that passage that we read together ourselves this morning. Chemnitz goes on, he says, In short, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, but is the spirit of the Antichrist. 1 John 4, 3. His flesh is given for the life of the world. John 6, 51. The incarnation is of infinite proportion to our salvation. Let's look to the text. John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. And be reminded afresh of the incarnation of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So this morning we come to this marvelous text concerning the incarnation of the Son of God. Now John has already told us about the Son of God, that he is God, that he was God and was with God in the beginning. 
that he's the creator of all that exists, that he has life. And now John tells us that the word became flesh. And so as we reflect on this great truth this morning, we'll do so under two main headings. First of all, the fact of the incarnation, and secondly, the fruit of the incarnation. The fact and the fruit. So first of all, the fact of the incarnation. John gives us the good news point blank. The word became flesh and dwelt, or could be translated, or t- and tabernacled among us. In other words, he who was God from all eternity with the Father became flesh and lived on earth among men. Now, when we read those words, that the word became flesh, we have to understand that this is a manner of speaking. When John uses the word flesh, we have to understand that he's speaking of a complete human nature consisting of a body and a soul. John uses the word flesh not to indicate simply a body, the muscles, bones, blood, and sinews, skin, and so forth, but rather he uses the language of a part to indicate the whole. The word became man. The word became flesh with a human body and a human soul. But even still, this is a manner of speaking, and this is because what John is describing here is not like a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. When we say that a caterpillar became a butterfly, we're talking about a complete change, a metamorphosis of a thing that was. When a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's not a caterpillar anymore. It is a butterfly. It was this, but now it's not this anymore. It is that. Now, let me be very clear. This is not. This is not what John is communicating to us here. When he says that the Word became flesh, John is not telling us that the eternal Word is not the eternal word anymore, but now is something else, namely flesh and blood, body and soul from this point forward. What John is telling us, rather, is that the eternal word became flesh in the sense that remaining ever what he was, he united to himself a human nature. As the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God eternally possessed the divine essence, the divine nature. His person as the Son had been eternally and unspeakably begotten by the Father from all eternity. And now, in the incarnation, as the Word became flesh, the Son united to himself a human nature, such that he took into his divine person a human nature. He is now and ever will be one person with two natures, the divine nature and the human nature. If I can borrow the language of the Athanasian Creed, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. One, not by the conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by the taking of the manhood into God. One altogether, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. The divine nature and the human nature remain distinct and unmixed, but yet they are united together in the one person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh, and the way in which this happened was that our Lord took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary, beginning at the moment of conception. And the Scripture speaks in many places of this. We're familiar with the the prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophecy of Isaiah 7, the virgin being with child, and that child being the one who will be called Emmanuel, who is God with us. We're familiar of the prophecy that we heard read this morning in Isaiah chapter 9 of this child who was to be born who would be called mighty God. In Luke chapter 1 verse 35, Mary was told by Gabriel how she would conceive Christ. Gabriel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And this is what Joseph was told by the angel, Matthew 1.20, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Thus the eternal word is made flesh as the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, enabling her to conceive. And in this way, Christ derives his, his human nature from Mary such that Elizabeth, speaking by the Holy Spirit in Luke 1.43, can refer to Mary as the mother of my Lord. And the New Testament is remarkably clear about the physicality of the incarnation. And so Paul can refer to the Son of God in Romans 1 verse 3 as being born a descendant of David according to the flesh. He really is, according to the flesh, a descendant of David. The fact of Jesus' true humanity was how John could say at the beginning of 1 John, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Physicality, the true incarnation, flesh and blood, Son of God here on the earth. And this fact of the incarnation, of course, means, as we've said, that Jesus is both God and man. He is, from eternity, the second person of the Trinity, with the same divine nature as the Father, one substance with the Father. He is, from eternity, therefore, the only begotten Son of the Father, or, as he's called in verse 18 of our text, the only begotten God. And then... In the fullness of time and the incarnation, the eternal person of the Son takes to himself this true human nature. And this happens at the moment of conception as Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And all of this happens so that Jesus Christ can truly be the seed of the woman. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse and bring salvation and redemption He can truly be the seed of Abraham, in whom all nations are blessed, be born a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and be called the son of David, and rightly so. In uniting to himself a human nature, or being made in the likeness of men, as Paul would say in Philippians 2.7, the son of God was preserved from every taint of original sin, and in his life he was kept from actual sin as well. So we find in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Likewise, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ had no sin in him, either actual or original, but he became sin for us in the sense of becoming a sacrifice for us as the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree. And thus, even though Christ derived his his human nature from his mother, from a sinful mother, we should understand that the miraculous circumstances of his conception, with the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary and the power of the Most High coming upon her, the human nature of Christ was sanctified from the moment of his conception. As John Gill put it, Christ was made of a woman, took flesh of a sinful woman, though the flesh he took of her was not sinful, being sanctified by the Spirit of God, the former of Christ's human nature. And so as the Spirit was, was working, forming the human nature of Christ within the womb of the Virgin Mary, Christ was sanctified as to his human nature, which he assumed. And although he was without sin, actual or original, We should note that in taking a human nature 
upon himself, he did also take upon him the weaknesses and infirmities of mankind that come as part of the curse and part of the penalty of sin. So as we know from the gospel accounts, Jesus could grow hungry, Jesus could grow thirsty, he could grow weary. Think of John chapter 4, he sat down at the well, weary from his journey, he could become grieved, he was subject to pain, ultimately even subject to death. Christ's human nature was subject to these infirmities, and he was subject to them for our sake. He knows what it is to suffer, and it is for our benefit that he knows what it is to suffer so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest for us and to offer himself up for us on the cross and also to make intercession for us as one who can sympathize with his brothers. The words of Martin Chemnitz are helpful in this regard when he said, The true teaching of Scripture concerning the human nature in Christ is this, that the Son of God in the fullness of time joined to himself in a perpetual union which shall not be dissolved for all eternity. A true human nature, complete, entire, of the same substance as ours, possessing a body and a rational soul, which contain with themselves all conditions, desires, powers, and faculties proper to and characteristic of human nature. This nature is pure, without sin, incorrupt and holy. Yet in it are all the infirmities which have befallen our nature as the penalties of sin. This he willingly and without imperfection assumed at the time of his humiliation for our sakes that he might be made the victim for us. Christ assumed all of this, took it all unto himself, so that he might be the sacrifice, the victim, offered up on the cross for us. So this is a great fact that John affirms, that the word became flesh. And it is an important fact. It is life eternal to know God the Father in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And it is destruction, eternal destruction, to reject this truth. And so John says in 1 John 4, 2, and 3, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard that it is coming, and now that it is already in the world. This is serious and important. This is not a matter upon which Christians can waffle. It is a great mystery, no doubt, and many things about it that defy our understandings and what our finite minds can grasp. But we must affirm this great fact on the testimony of the Word of God, that the Word became flesh. So now that we've seen this, this fact of the Incarnation, what is the result of it? What are the, the fruits or the benefits that flow to us from the Incarnation? Well, those benefits are many. Since He has dwelt among us, He has entered into our uh, existence, our experience as a man, He brings to us the fullness of the grace of God and salvation. He reveals the Father to us. And so since he has entered into our experience as a man, he's uniquely qualified, again, to be our high priest and mediator, our savior, to defeat the devil and to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And we, we read this together in Hebrews 2, where we read some really forceful words from the writer to the Hebrews. He says, Therefore, since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, 
that through death he might render him powerless who had the fear of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he helps. He gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Did you catch the forcefulness of what the writer to the Hebrews said? It said that he had to be made like his brethren in all things. In other words, the incarnation is not simply kind of, kind of icing on the cake. This is a requirement in God's plan of salvation. If the Son of God is going to become a merciful and faithful high priest for us in things pertaining to God, he had to be like us in all things, sin only accepted. He had to be tempted as we are, yet without sin. He had to partake of flesh and blood so that he would be able to die and would be able to die in our place and would be able to defeat Satan for us. He had to suffer temptation himself to be able to sympathize with us and come to our aid when we are tempted. In order to make propitiation for our sins, it's necessary that he be a man and a sinless man at that. The Son of God became one of us so that he could save us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But John continues on and he says, We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now I realize that if you're using uh, the ESV, it will read glory as of the only Son from the Father. But I actually lean toward thinking that John is actually giving us here some helpful theological language by which we may faithfully describe the Son of God in his relationship to God the Father. And this word shows up in John periodically. He uses this word that's translated as, as only begotten. He uses it there in verse 14. He uses it down in verse 18. He uses it in John 3.16. uses it in 1 John 4 verse 9. Now in John 3.16 and 1 John 4.9, he calls Jesus the only begotten Son. Here in verse 14, he doesn't use the word Son. He simply calls Jesus the only begotten from the Father. And then down in verse 18, he calls him the only begotten God. I think it's, it would be to our loss and that we would miss some of the theological intent of what John is saying if we, if we translate it as, as only instead of only begotten. But what does John say here? He says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So as Jesus lived on the earth, he displayed his glory. And in seeing the person uh, and the work of Jesus of Nazareth, those who saw him with the eyes of faith, saw the glory of the Son of God. And in seeing the glory of the Son of God, they saw the glory of God himself. Jesus could go so far as to say to Philip in John 14, 9 and following, that he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Now, as Jesus' words to Philip hint, recognizing the glory of God in Jesus Christ, then as now, is something that is done by faith and not by sight. You couldn't simply look at Jesus' outward physical appearance and say, oh, this man is the Son of God. I can tell just, just by the way he looks. You couldn't do that. Isaiah prophetically says of him, Isaiah 53, 2, that he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. But for those who had the eye of faith to see it, Jesus did reveal the glory of God. 
And how did he do this? Well, for one, he did it through his miracles. And so after the first miracle recorded here in John, the turning of the water into wine at Cana of Galilee, John 2.11, John says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The miracles manifested the glory of Christ. On the whole, they show that Jesus rules all and is in control of all things. He is sovereign over sickness because he can heal sickness. He's sovereign over death because he can raise the dead. He's sovereign even over Satan because he can cast out demons. He has authority on earth to forgive sins. The miracles demonstrated for those who had the faith to see it that this man is the Son of God. But for those who did not have the faith to see it, they attributed the miracles, at least some of them, to the devil. On that one occasion, Matthew chapter 12, you may recall that they said it was by Beelzebul, by Satan, the prince of demons, that he cast out demons. But for those who had the eye of faith to see it, they could see that the kingdom of God had come upon them because the glory of the Son of God was manifested in the casting out of demons. And likewise, Jesus manifested his glory by his teaching and his insight. To some, then as now, he was just a good teacher. But to those with faith, he was seen to be who he truly was, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when the Samaritan woman went back into that town of Sychar to uh, speak to the people of that town, she said to them, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Because Jesus had spoken to her and had spoken with insight and prophetic insight into her life, knew what she had done. She, she was on to something. She said, this man cannot be the Christ, can he? And after the people of that town heard Jesus speak, they said to her, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one indeed is the Savior of the world. John 4.42 But others who heard him, who had no faith, said, as we find in John 10.20, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Some people say the same thing today. The glory of Jesus was seen only by those whose eyes were opened by God to see it. But for those who did see it, they saw the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In seeing Jesus, this is what they saw. They saw Jesus. They saw the one who has explained the Father. As we find down below in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And as Jesus was explaining the Father, revealing the glory of God and revealing his own glory as God, they saw that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. We'll come back to that. But meanwhile, we see John's circular style of writing coming through in verse 15 when he refers to the testimony of John the Baptist. He'd already referred to John the Baptist up in verses 6 through 8, and he'll speak of John shortly again down in verse 19. But what he does here is he connects John's testimony to the Word made flesh, an eternal being who was coming and who did come in time. And notice Notice carefully John the Baptist's words there in verse 15. John says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I because he existed before me. 
You see in those words how John is, is building upon his own earlier teaching. It's like he's talking to people and he's referring back to something that he had earlier said. He had said at one point, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He had said that as he was anticipating the coming of the Christ onto the scene of public ministry in Judea. And indeed, we, we see this picture of John in the Gospels, doing this work of preaching, pointing the people to the one who was coming after him, who was superior to him. And so just for instance, Luke 3.16, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water, but one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so the picture is that John the Baptist had been saying these things about Jesus. And then Jesus came on the scene and began his ministry. And then when Jesus actually came and was baptized by John and began his ministry, John could say, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. It's as if John were saying, I told you that he was coming. Here he is. This is the man that I was talking about. He has a higher place than me. He existed before me. And by saying that, by saying that he existed before me, John is, is pointing out the existence of the Son of God as eternal and as divine. If you think back on the history of their actual birth orders, John the Baptist was born first, and then Jesus was born. To say that Jesus was before him is because Jesus existed before him eternally. This is speaking of the pre-existence of the Son of God. And so our gospel writer gives us, gives us a little aside about the, the testimony of John. And then he continues almost uh, where he had left off in, in verse 14. The, the flow of logic seems to flow from the end of 14. Uh, and he picks up on that flow in verse 16. So... In 14, he had said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then comes verse 16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. We saw his glory. He was full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we've received grace. Grace upon grace. And when he uses this phrase, grace upon grace, John seems to be communicating the idea of replacement. It could be translated as grace in place of grace. And if we think that he's speaking of some kind of replacement, we might well ask, well, what, what kind of grace is the grace from Jesus replacing? And I think we find the answer in verse 17. And again, notice, notice carefully the words, the connecting word for or because. We've received grace upon grace or grace in place of grace. Why? For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace, grace in place of grace. The law given through Moses was, in one sense, a gracious thing. That must be said, the law of Moses is not pure grace. It's been said, and I think with truth, that the Mosaic Covenant had a legal face as well as an evangelical face. The covenant of Sinai was legal and contained elements of the covenant of works within it because Paul says in Galatians 3.12, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And if anyone does not live by them, does not live by the letter of the law, he shall be cursed. And Paul says in Galatians 3.10, quoting Deuteronomy 27.2, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to 
perform them. And so on the one hand, there's a legal face to the Mosaic law, but at the same time, the covenant at Sinai had an evangelical face or a gospel face in that the law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. The covenant at Sinai shows us our sin, shows us our need for redemption. It shows us in types and shadows how that redemption would be accomplished through a sacrifice, through a priest. And though we must maintain the distinction between the law and grace or between the law and the gospel, what can be said and should be said is that if anyone was convicted of their sin, that was surely a gracious thing that the law accomplished. If the Mosaic law served as a tutor, and it does, then this is the grace of God working by types and shadows, and in that sense the law is a gracious gift of God. The law through Moses was a good thing, was a gracious thing. It had within it the summary of God's moral law, the standard by which he calls men and women to live by. It contained within it the ceremonial law showing the, the sacrifices, the priesthood, and so on, pointing ahead and foreshadowing the work of Christ. The law is good, but only so good. It couldn't actually save anyone. It could point out sin and guilt and convict and convince people they were sinners, and it could restrain people from sinning, perhaps through, through fear. It could inform us concerning God's righteous requirements of how to frame our lives, but it couldn't save anyone because no one is able actually to keep it. The law cannot make us righteous. The law says, do this and live. And for those who can't, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to fulfill it. The law condemns us all and it saves none of us. So Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness came through the law, Christ died needlessly. Likewise, he says in Romans 8, 3 and 4, that what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So from the fullness of Jesus, we've received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace. This grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses. It was good, but it was powerless to save us. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace that is powerful to save. Grace that is powerful to justify and sanctify where the law was powerless. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The law is gracious in some respects, but not gracious enough to save anyone. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ alone. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 5, of Christ and his work. He says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, and he's quoting from Psalm 40, putting them on the lips of Jesus, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor do you take pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the new covenant which Christ brings into effect by his death. It's a covenant that is enacted on better promises than the Mosaic covenant. And we receive grace upon grace, grace in place of grace in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, or excuse me, John says 
Not only that grace came through Jesus Christ, but also truth came through Jesus Christ. It's almost as if he's saying that the law contained the shadows that were pointing to Christ, but Christ is the substance. He's the reality. He's the image of the invisible God, the true sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the true high priest who offered up himself unblemished to God on our behalf. When he died on the cross, he is the true prophet, the prophet like Moses who came into the world and spoke the word of God to us. He is, in the words of verse 18, the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, who has explained the Father to us. And notice how in in those words of verse 18, John circles back, as it were, all the way to verse 1. Verse 1, he had started out with the word who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God. And now, having expanded upon the Son of God and His coming into the world, John comes back to this union of the Father and the Son. He says, no one has seen God at any time. And indeed, no one has seen God the Father. The Lord told Moses, Exodus thirty-three twenty, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. In other words, the glory of God is incompatible with frail and sinful humanity. We cannot take in the sight No one has seen God at any time. However, the only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, He who was God from all eternity and with God from all eternity, He has explained God the Father to us. Again, just think of those words of Jesus to Philip, John 14, 9. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is the one who has revealed God the Father to us. He's explained or exegeted God the Father to us. He's the one who is one with the Father. And this is a fruit of of the incarnation. We get to know God because of the incarnation of Christ. Paul put it this way, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Certainly Old Testament believers knew God and walked with Him. But since God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son, we have a greater knowledge of God than they ever did. And so then, we've considered the fact of the Incarnation, how the Word became flesh, and we've considered the fruit of the Incarnation, how He dwelt among us as one of us, how He went to the cross and became an acceptable sacrifice for us. We've seen how we, from His fullness, have received grace upon grace as He ushered in the new covenant for us based on better promises. We've seen how He reveals God the Father to us. And so the question then confronting each one of us this morning is this. What is your response to Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus has been a divisive person from the beginning of His Incarnation down to the present time. His works and his teaching give evidence as to who he is. He is, as we read here, full of grace and truth. As such, he provides the only possible way of salvation. And he calls us to turn away from our sins, to follow after him. He's the initiator of the new covenant. He's the way to God because he's the word made flesh. But if this evidence of who Jesus is is not received In faith, then it has no eternal benefit for us. John tells us, as we've already seen, that Jesus came to those who were his own and they did not receive him. They didn't believe. They didn't care. Ultimately, the kingdom of God was taken from them. But he also tells us that 
as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. So believe in his name through the preaching of the gospel. Christ offers you himself. And so receive Christ, the best gift of all. And for those of you who have received him, remember again and rejoice in all that is provided for you and for your salvation because the word became flesh. Remember that of his fullness, you, personally you, have received grace upon grace. Remember that in Christ there are unsearchable riches, as we find in Ephesians 3.8. There's grace that pardons, grace that frees us from our bondage to sin, grace that justifies, grace that sanctifies, grace that strengthens us for godly living and perseverance in the faith here and now, grace that will lead us on to glory and will glorify us in the future. This means that we can take refuge in Christ at all times. He's our mediator, he's our advocate, We can go to him when we are weary and worn out with things here on the earth. We can go to him for strength and grace when temptation is seducing us away from the path of righteousness. We can go to him when even we have succumbed to evil. This Jesus is our only hope, our only light, our only source of strength and life. He is also our perfect example for godliness. It's interesting to note how Paul uses the the example of Christ's humility and the humiliation of the incarnation in Philippians chapter 2 to exhort Christians unto humility in the way that they interact with one another. We see in Jesus perfect humility, and we're called as his people to imitate that humility. And so let's look to Christ, and let's find in him all the fullness that we need for life and godliness here in this world, and therefore all that we need for entrance into the world to come. Praise God that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This eternal Word is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. We realize that our salvation hinges upon the truth of what is told to us here. And Lord, we ask that you would would strengthen our faith, that you would strengthen our comfort in this truth. Lord, that this would be the great bedrock of our faith. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we've received grace upon grace through him. Father, we praise you for Christ. We ask for your mercy that we would live as faithful citizens in Christ's kingdom. We would imitate his humility, that we would rely on him, faithfully serve him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.